Hi, my name is Pablo Galindo. And my name is Lucas Langa. And this is the Core.py podcast, a new podcast where we discuss the internals of CPython and other adventures in making a new version of your favorite programming language. Today, we'll be talking about the heart of Python and the bit that makes the interpreter an interpreter, which in CPython is called clval.c. Right. Uh, when I was looking at the current state of ceval.c, I was a bit scared of trying to explain it from the get-go. When I started contributing to Python, when I started using Python, things were simpler. So how about let's go back to this historical part of Python, which still to an extent is the same, but the source code for it is much easier to reason about. The easiest way to understand where we are now will be to look at the simplified case first. So let's go back to Python 2.6. You will probably have trouble compiling that version on modern Macs and Linux boxes, but you can use the CentOS Docker image with the tag CentOS 6 if you're curious to try it out yourself. To be clear, I don't expect you to be running Python 2.6 right now when listening. Yeah, yeah. More importantly, you can find the code for what we'll be talking about under the 2.6 tag in the Python slash CPython repository on GitHub. And I chose 2.6 specifically because it's the last version before any optimizations that make it hard to see how Python evaluates your code. If you are really curious, you can look up the 0.9.8 tag on GitHub and look there too. But at this point, this is too different from what we have today. You're you're painting this as if uh, listeners will have a lot of trouble running it, which may be true. Uh, But I was going to add, unless they probably work at certain financial institutions, when probably they can just look at their normal repository and check how the code code works. (laughs) Cool. In my particular case, I I try to compile it myself, like neither Py env or my attempts to do it on my own like succeeded because of uh, expectations of way older uh, libraries uh, like to be there on the operating system and then some mac os shenanigans being different like back in the day compared to what we're doing now <laughs> so uh, i just gave up and decided like hey probably there is some red hat or centos still you know centos maybe not a thing these days as i remember it but centos 6 turns out um, you can just start the uh, docker image very quickly and mm-hmm. there you go there's python 2.6 and on github the tag is forever so you can go ahead and actually find the ceval.c file there in the python folder in our repository so this file contains basically uh, the core of the inter- and uh, before we understand what's going on here, we need to understand basically how Python uh, runs programs. Uh-huh. And uh, you know, this can change from different implementations, but most implementations of Python, and in particular CPython, uses a stack virtual machine. And uh, this is because, like you know, when you are running programs on your computer, there are different models of how your CPU can execute code. Like uh, and and when you are talking about dynamic languages, we normally abstract CPUs in software, so we can like decide how to run different instructions. And it turns out that uh, most programming languages fit uh, the stack model very well. This exactly. uh, is a, just a way to execute programs. There are others like register machines when there is different um, like registers that, that can hold data. But uh, C Python uses a stack model, and this right. is what cval.c implement. It's the stack evaluator. Right. For example, if you have nested function calls, in other words, you use a function call as an argument 
argument to another function, what Python needs to do is it will call the function that is the argument first. It will hold on to the return value of that function and pass it on as an argument to a call to the outer one. Right. So uh, the idea here is that uh, when you are executing these functions, there will be like some data structure, which is a stack, and the results will be pushed to the stack, and when they will be finished, they will be uh, pop from the stack, right? So, so the idea is that we store the data internally in this particular data structure, even if you don't never see this when you run um, Python programs. Right. So to see how this works, let's consider a simple code fragment: lambda colon x plus one. So it's an expression that creates an anonymous function, right? This is what the lambda keyword says. Right. You can assign this expression to a variable or use it inside a function call as an argument that is a callable. So what does the function in the expression do? Well, it takes a non-local variable x, adds one to it, and returns the result. Mm -hmm. But when you write lambda colon x plus one, you're not adding one to x yet, right? You're creating a function, a kind of code object, which is a template for code execution that will happen at some other time. To see how this code object looks like internally, you can disassemble it using the dis, spelled D-I-S, standard library. So import D-I-S from D-I-S, and call it with our little lambda expression as the single argument. In other words, you will say this open paren, lambda colon, x plus one, close paren. So when you see this in a REPL, it will return a bunch of opcodes for you. Some uppercase names like load global, load const, binary add, return value. In other words, these are identifiers for granular operations that the stack VM can perform. And in our case, there will be four of them. First, there's load global x. So the code first loads the global onto the stack. And then load const 1. So a constant, it needs to find it somewhere, load it and put it onto the stack. Then we have this binary add operation that uses what we already have on the stack as arguments. So it removes those two arguments from the stack and puts the result of the operation back onto the stack. And then we have the return value opcode that just returns the value on top of the stack. That's what the Lambda is doing. Right. One one detail here, just for uh, our listeners that may not be familiar with the term, sometimes we say that this is a stack VM. VM here stands for virtual machine, and this is just referring to the fact that we are abstracting like how the CPU works. So we are not talking about you know the VMs that you will install to install other operating systems, and so when you need to install uh, Linux on Windows or Windows on Linux or whatever, we are talking about here when we say VM, we talk about like the abstraction of a you know a, CP, a CPU or like lower level hardware on software, which is what CPython is implementing here. Yeah, totally. Um, so so these are opcodes, and unfortunately, we are not going to go into all. Possible opcodes today because you know this uh -huh. podcast is is really long and we don't want to you know take you six hours and uh, these opcodes change between different versions of Python. But what is important to understand here is where these opcodes come from. And what happens here is that when you write your program, you know you write a text file with your with your um, like Python source code. So C Python and Python in general will basically grab that source code and uh, using the parser and the uh, bytecode compiler will transform the text that is your uh, source 
to the different bytecodes, right? So different different functions will create different bytecodes. And uh, the important here is that uh, these bytecodes are just templates for code executions. Right. Uh, this means that uh, it's just instructions that the uh, interpreter needs to do, but there is the other ingredient that we need here to actually do something, which is data, right? You need to know, uh, talking about what, what uh, Gukesh was talking before, if you are going to add two things together, well, sure, the opcode says, you know, binary add, but you need to know what things are you actually adding together because you could be adding integers or you could be adding strings or maybe you're adding an integer and strings and that will blow up, right? So, so when we introduce the values of those variables, uh, Python needs to do something with that uh, data and that uh, bytecode, which is what we call evaluation. And basically, evaluation is just is just bringing the two together. And the way to think about this is that uh, when you're in a function, for instance, uh, but there are other you know areas of execution, but functions are the simpler ones. Uh, you know, every function has its own local scope and local variables and arguments. And the idea is that uh, and more complicated things like you know you can have non-locals and like class class scope is even weirder. But the idea is that uh, you know uh, C Python will will grab this uh, with this data together with the opcode and then will be start executing this. And uh, because C Python needs to know in every instant what is the status of like what instruction is being executed and what are the values of the local variables because obviously as you run your function those can change. Um, this state needs to be stored somewhere and we call this in execution frame. So when we're talking about frames, you need to think about basically what the function is doing at some uh, at some moment, right? So you know what instruction is being executed, but also what is the value of all uh, the data. And you know frames contain more things than just these two things. But for what we need to discuss here, this is the first thing that you need to know. And you know evaluating a frame is unsurprisingly called frame evaluation. Right. So when I first started looking into programming languages, still at university. The thing that I couldn't quite understand was why wouldn't the data that we need with this code object be just stored on the code object? Yeah, yeah. But later I understood that obviously the same function can be in some state of execution multiple times at the same time in an interpreter. Right. Either you have multiple threads or you might have a recursive function, so a function that calls itself. And in this case, there's going to be the same function having different data at the same time, which is why we have separate frame objects for this. So to evaluate the frames, we're going to actually use a single big loop that literally goes through all the opcodes that we need to deal with and executes them one by one. So to see it now, it would be a little complicated, <laughs> but to see it in Python 2.6.9, you can go to the Python directory, open the file called ceval.c, and in line 5.6.1, you will actually see the function pyeval, eval frame, what, what does this do? So that's the function that does all the evaluation. And in it, there is going to be a bunch of defines, and at line 8.30, you literally have this forever loop. It's a for loop with no arguments, so just two semicolons inside. And this loop checks a bunch of things first. And at line 9.71, we literally have a big switch statement right. that implements what each opcode does. Some are simple, like load const that I already mm, covered. 
that is just a lookup of the consts that are on the code object that encrypts the result and pushes it back to the stack. Right. Other opcodes like binary add are surprisingly rich because they implement several combinations of argument types and work around possible error conditions. That tells us that not every opcode is on the same level of complexity. Some are just a few native instructions and some are very complex. So in line 6090, you have an even more interesting detail because we at some point reached so many uh, case um, instructions in the switch that some of the compilers of the time were not able <laughs> to handle uh, the complexity of the switch statement. So we had to have a nested switch statement in the default <laughs> right, um, right. case just so that older compilers could still compile Python. We couldn't handle 112 cases that we had um, in that switch statement in Python 2.6. But coming back to frame evaluation, we already mentioned that programming languages fit the stack model well. And this is true for frames as well. Code execution in the grand scheme of things is function calls that contain other function calls that contain other function calls. So the innermost function always returns first, unless we're talking coroutines, but let's not go there now. So the innermost function always returns first, and then the one that called it, and then the one that called the other one. So they form a stack. It's not the same stack that we talked about with the stack VM, but it is a stack. Right. Where I'm going with this here is that for every Python function call in the olden days of Python 2.6, we had a single C call as well to pi eval eval frame x. So it was very simple to see in um, C debuggers and profilers and so on and so on that for every call that you had in your Python source code, there was an equivalent C level uh, call to pi eval eval frame x. And right, like if you are now scrolling through this um, 2.6 life, you might think, oh, actually not so bad. And if you're not because you're commuting or whatnot, you just have to believe us that, you know, it wasn't extremely hard to understand what the core of the interpreter was. But that was then. Right, right. And also, like, it's interesting to notice that uh, we said the word stack, uh, probably referring to many different things, exactly. yeah, because there is plenty of stacks here. And just to clarify, um, so, so that there is like the data stack that you know the interpreter uses to push the arguments of the functions. When you are adding numbers, you need to push first the two things that you are adding to the stack, and then you take them to add them, and then you push the result. So that's one stack. The the stack that Gukas just mentioned is the function stack. That is what you see when you see traceback. That that is the Python function stack, and then there's the C function stack, which because this just happens uh, that C Python is implemented in C. Obviously, that's the C of C Python, and that's a different thing. And you know th there is some tension between the two because you could. Uh, Theoretically, never exhaust the Python stack. You could imagine a world when you can call functions and functions and functions, and you never finish. But the C stack has a limit, and that's what you get. You know, when you exhaust the C stack, you get a stack overflow, and um, we will see how we handle those cases to you know not crash Python uh, later. But just just if you have reached this point of the podcast, and then you are like you know your head is spinning out like what what, what does the stack even mean? Um, there is all these stacks here. So when we say it's a stack machine, well, it's like a stack machine along another stack machine. 
um, you know, executing executing on top of another one. So, so it's a, it's a very interesting thing. Yeah, it's 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 a stack of stacks essentially. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, nested stacks, right? Right. That fits very well the stack model as well. Yeah, like the frame evaluation executes opcodes. You probably already found out at some point in your usage of Python that. Uh, PYC files of one version will not work with another version of Python. And this is because a different version of Python will use a different set of opcodes. The reason why is that um, there are plenty of new opcodes for new features. So for example, in Python 3.10, we added match class, match mapping, match sequence, and match keys to uh, support pattern matching. Some opcodes were added as specialized, more efficient variants of common operations. And one interesting example is load method was added in Python 3.7, and after Python gained the full-blown specializing interpreter, this opcode was again removed in Python 3.12, because now we have a more generic way to achieve this optimization without having to use a separate opcode. Right. And talking about optimizations, uh, one of the things that uh, made interpreter much faster, but actually complicated the code quite a lot, it was the addition of computed go-tos. Uh, that is, this is also called, uh, if you're a you know, you're a PhD student, you probably would call this threaded code because it's a much more confusing way to refer to the whole thing. But everybody in the industry calls this computed go-tos. And the first time you see this is quite surprising because uh, this is not a standard C actually. Uh, like this is not in the C standard, this is not something that you can actually do with C. But turns out that most compilers actually support this. Uh, with the exception of the Microsoft compiler, we are looking at you, buddy. One <laughs> <laughs> like you know, like go to uh, the future. And uh, but the, the idea here is that because we have basically this this big for loop that is executing uh, you know different opcodes. Every time you execute one, you need to basically see the opcode that you're looking, go to this ginormous switch statement that Gukesh mentioned before, and then you need to jump to the particular case that is handling that opcode, right? And then another iteration of the loop will do the same and the same and the same. Um, well, this is already like good because that's what you need to do. But turns out that you know the the, the if, if you have like s- certain opcodes w- working together, there are certain inefficiencies there. For instance, um, you will see that some opcodes will appear always in pairs, right, or one after the other, quite a lot. And modern CPUs, they are very good at predicting what will happen uh, when you execute one instruction. What will happen next, right? And then we have all these new like you know technology. Technologies that will uh, be able to, you know, try to predict what will happen and pre-execute it in that case. But the problem is that um, we are talking about at the level of opcodes, and the machine are, is only looking at a stream of instructions, and every single instruction will need to jump to the next. Uh, you know, uh, like the beginning of the switch statement to jump to the next instruction, which means that uh, from that point when the switch happens, CPUs will have a really hard time predicting what is the next opcode that will execute because the switching point happens at the beginning, right? You read the switch, you read the opcode, and then you jump somewhere in the hundreds of opcodes that we have. Right. Uh, but normally, if you have a you know load const, uh, there are only a very certain amount of opcodes that can follow. And this is where you know these computed go-to's uh, appear here. And the idea here is that you don't you, you don't jump to the beginning of the loop and then you hit the switch statement. The idea is that you jump directly to the next instructions. 
uh, obviously you need to check that the next instruction is the one that you are predicting that will happen. But if that's the case, you will skip the switch uh, and you will jump directly to where the instruction is and you will continue executing there uh, directly. It's like as if you copy-pasted the code of the next instruction after the one in the previous instruction, right? And that is much more efficient because you skip the jump to the uh, beginning, so you skip a bunch of instructions from the uh, handling of the jump table. But also you uh, you know you can leverage the branch predictor of your CPUs, which is like what is going to make your Python much much faster. Um, because it will start seeing that you know after these load cons, then these other uh, instructions will appear, and it will be able to start mapping what instructions are following what other instructions, and it will start pre-executing that code before uh, before the CPU actually hits it, and that will speed up quite a lot. Um, the code execution and this uh, when you see this actually happening because these are go tos and go tos needs a label right you normally like write this as go to some label and then the label is specified as my label column right and that's where where the jump will happen uh, you will see that the syntax is a bit funky because you will take the address of a label that is something that is extremely super weird in C and actually that has uh, that has the type of that is a void star. And when you jump to the actual label, you will dereference the pointer where you're storing the label. And that's the only case in C that I have seen that you can dereference avoid the star pointer. Because normally you, you cannot dereference avoid the star because you don't know the type. Mm -hmm. This is the only case when it will look like if you are the reference avoid the star pointer, which is quite cool. But you know, it's not compliance, it's just a uh, compiler extension. But everybody uses it these days because it's much more efficient. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's quite cool. But what it means is there is no longer a very easy to read switch statement. So when we added this in Python 2.7 and at the same time in Python 3.1, this got Python 25% faster for this particular use case. So that's great. But it made this code a little less clear to read, which is why we went back all the way to Python 2.6 to introduce frame evaluation because at this point, this magic was not happening yet. And speaking of speeding things up, a very popular demand for, from Python users is for Python to have a JIT. Right. What does that mean? What that would mean is replacing what we're talking about right now, which is frame evaluation by interpreting opcodes with first compiling and then executing pieces of machine code directly that operate on your data. Right. That would obviously be much faster and because we know that there are Python interpreters that do support just-in-time compilation, it would make sense to have this functionality in CPython as well. Right. And in Python 3.6, Brett Cannon landed PEP 5.2.3 that allowed certain tools to plug into the frame evaluation API and essentially replace the default interpreted evaluation with something else. Right. So in other words, there is now a function pointer in PyInterpreter state that allows replacing PyEvil evil frame default with uh, some custom function that might execute more than just a single opcode and might execute more than a single frame. It might just keep executing for a while. Right. So there is one experimental JIT for Python 3.10 using this API called Pigeon that was started by Red Cannon and continued by Anthony Shaw. So this project uses the .NET core CLR JIT with Python. Depending on the benchmark, it shows minor improvements all the way to over 2x improvements, but it isn't a major improvement for generic Python code. One other JIT implementing PEP uh, 523 
this time for Python 3.8, is Piston Lite. And that shows 25% improvement in pipe performance over this regular the, Python 3.8. the one 3. associated 8. with the Piston project, right? Exactly, yes. So Piston is a specific fork of CPython that is essentially replacing the frame evaluation code with something else. And Piston Lite is a form of this interpreter as an extension module that uses the PEP 5.2.3 API to plug into regular Python interpreters that you're going to find on your operating system or some other way that you're you know, downloading Python. Right. right. So for specific use cases, this kind of API can be more effective. For example, Torch Inductor, the default backend that compiles graphs into machine code for unmodified PyTorch programs, uses PEP 5.2.3 to achieve speedups of over 3x. Wow. And it's using this by fusing sequential operations to avoid excessive reads and writes as well as by doing out-of-order execution, something that the C compiler loves to do, <laughs> and automatic work placement that's hardware-dependent. But in general, it turns out that having a JIT that compiles at the boundary of a function call or a method call isn't very effective. So PyPy, for example, is different. It can compile long chains of instructions called traces that go outside of a single method call. So the faster Python team now recognizes this and is working on a new pluggable optimizer API to replace PEP 5.2.3. It's currently experimental. It allows registering an optimizer with PyUnstable <laughs> underscore set optimizer for now. It works with one or many executors that can switch execution between them, including even tail call optimization, which I found really interesting. So however, a surprising use case appeared for PEP 5.2.3, which actually makes it still alive and kicking. It's currently uh, used for debuggers. Like the PyCharm debugger uses this API instead of the traditional sys.setTrace API, and as Lisa Shashkova reported in her PyCon 2017 talk, this was over 10 times faster in the worst case and up to 80 times faster in the best case, making the debugger a way better experience than before. Well, this is uh, one thing that always scares me about people using PAPE uh, 5.2.3 is that this interface is extremely unstable in the sense that I think even in the pep we mentioned that the, the API can change from any Python version to the next. And in Python 3.10 actually, um, because we change all this optimization regarding frames and we make them faster, uh, now the actual <laughs> argument to uh, the function that you need to provide in pep 5.2.3 is technically opaque because it's one of these frame uh, you know, interpreted frames that are not supposed to be in the public API, which you know is kind of weird because you need to provide a function that receives an argument that you don't, you cannot inspect. But obviously, if you are going to implement one of these, uh, you know, alternative, you know, interpreter uh, evaluators, you obviously need to inspect the frame because that's where the data is, right? Right. And so I'm very interested to see where all these use cases go. Or like what we're going to do in C Python if we are going to you know uh, have the two APIs work at the same time and be compatible with each other, or we are going to force everyone to move uh, to Python stable set optimization in the future. If that works to be uh, turns to be better. Um, it's an interesting um, certain case for sure. Um, but talking about like improvements, uh, one very cool thing that happened on Python three twelve 
uh, you know, that is not very visible, but this is going to help us a lot in Python 3.13 when we release it later uh, next year, um, is that uh, Widow um, created a new DSL basically to define the instruction semantics for every opcode. And this is because like cval.c, uh, apart from being this you know big for loop with the big switch loop, uh, sorry, switch uh, statement inside, um, you know, it has a bunch of other things, right? And all of them are extreme, extremely uh, entangled. This file is super, super big. It's one of the biggest C files that we have in CPython that is mostly handwritten. And the idea is that you know it deals with uh, evaluation, but it also uh, deals with like uh, you know the error handling, like what happens if there is an exception uh, tracing, for instance, coverage. Coverage used to uh, well, it still uses this right like, because they they have not moved to the new cool stuff. Uh, it also deals with instrumentation now uh, using the new um, you know uh, uh, implementations of the coverage and, and instrumentation that Mark did. Uh, that Google was using for the coverage stuff, uh-huh. and it uses a bunch of other implementation details. So the idea is that we have this uh, domain-specific language that was uh, DSL is uh, that basically describes all the semantics of the different opcodes, and then there is this program that reads this description and it generates uh, most of cval.c. You could argue that you know we already kind of have a DSL in cval.c because when you if you look at it and you look at how these instructions were. Uh, written even in all Python, like Python 2.6, uh, which I like to call legacy Python now, oh, because I think we are enabled to do. Uh, you will see that uh, there is a bunch of C markers that, that do a bunch of things, like for instance, stop, pop, and push. And those are basically just uh, expanded to do some operations with the data stack. Like I want to push this value on the stack, and I want to pop from the stack and get it somewhere. So you could, uh, you could argue that there is already some auto-generated code there via the C macros, but this is a whole new thing. The, the idea here is that there is an entire specification that auto generates a lot of uh, you know cval.c and this means that now we don't have any more uh, a, a switch statement because now there is all these different things and the key here is that this is not just for uh, you know maintenance purposes because you could say well that's kind of cool that you write like uh, descriptions and then there is machine code that generates things obviously that makes easier to change stuff and, and less error prone because if it can be auto generated it means that there is less mistakes that you do but the idea is that we're, the reason we we did this and the reason we did this is to start uh, allowing implementing what we call tier 2 interpreter and a tier to interpreter is basically uh, the same idea. Uh, so it's a loop with, uh, conceptually at least, it's a loop with a switch inside. But this doesn't operate on opcodes, but what, what, what we call micro instructions or micro ops or uops, as, as uh, is referring to Python. And the whole idea is that uh, a JIT compiler likes these instructions much better because they are more granular, right? Like uh, as Gukas mentioned, there is instructions right now, bytecode instructions that are very small, like you know, load cons, and that basically gets a value from the Tag and put it somewhere, uh, but like you know, binary add is one of the big ones, and there are even bigger ones, right? Like the ones uh, used to unwind exceptions or call functions or set up with statements. All of those can be quite big, right. and they have a lot of complexity. So a JIT compiler will struggle optimizing around. And uh, the first, for instance, the first uh, micro op that we implemented is uh, for eater. And the idea is that when we have this uh, copy and patch JIT compiler that we talked in the first episode that uh, was presented by the Faster C Python team and by Brand, 
in um, the Python core developer sprint of this year. And the idea is that um, the, this JIT compiler will be able to take a stream of these micro ops and then it will replace them by a single piece of efficient machine code that is composed by copying and paste, pasting especially precompiled chunks. So the idea is that we'll have these templates written in C um, that we can auto-generate via this description and then we will have a compiler that will compile this to very uh, like native code uh, that is going to be very efficient because we use the native compiler to compile this, these things to native code and then we will basically copy what the compiler produces and place it somewhere that we need to kind of recompose later because if those functions uh, that are compiled are calling some random function in the Python uh, interpreter like I don't know by number add obviously they don't know where this uh, function is in the in the code segment because that only will be known at linkage, uh, linkage time right but the idea is that we will grab this with some holes that we call it and then we will replace those holes which are the addresses of these functions uh, at runtime once we know where these functions are and uh, even if you are very excited to hear about this because you will say, wow, that's kind of cool. Uh, the JIT compiler is very important because tier 2 interpreter is actually doing a lot of stuff uh, that is extra and without the JIT compiler uh, this is actually not faster, it's actually slower and as Brand mentioned in the Python core developer sprint, I think if I remember correctly, tier 2 interpreter is, is 5% slower and with the super prototypey drafty JIT compiler that he had, just to prove the point, uh, this was 0% faster and 0% Lower because, like, you know, 5% of cost for the uh, tier 2 interpreter and 5% gain for the JIT compiler to a total of zero. But the idea here is that as we improve the JIT, because this was a super drafty version, uh, this will start being a positive number and hopefully a very big positive number. Right. The tier 2 interpreter is still a work in progress, very much so. The interesting bit of this is the entire executor API is being developed at the same time. Those things are experimental and so on and so on. So if you are looking inside Python 3.13 right now and try to understand what's going on in CFLC right now, this will be pretty confusing and hard to understand, which is, again, why we started our story in Python 2.6, where, for example, binary add existed. These days, we no longer have binary add, we have binary op. Right. And the actual operation is an argument to this opcode. So those things tend to change all the time. And one of the things that changed was this thing that I told you before about how it used to be that when you called a Python function, every time that meant we called a C function at the same time, which was used by uh, many pieces of tooling for Python and C to look at the stack of calls and to be able to tell you that, oh, this function called this function called this function and display you a nice traceback, for example, in GDB or in some sort of profiler that you ran against Python. So these days, for efficiency reasons, we grew a way to call Python functions from other Python functions without having a new C call to pyEvalEvalFrameDefault. This turns out to be much faster, and by the way, the frame data that we're using for this isn't even a Python object anymore. Or interpreter frames. Right. But as a result, we are complicating lives of tools that rely on a read the stack of C 
calls to PyEval eval frame default. If you want to have a frame object in Python, there are still APIs for this, obviously, right? So you can still get this in your Python code. So how does this work? Well, Python will create those frame objects for you on demand, but only when you ask. If you don't ask for them, this is going to be now more efficient in a representation that uses less copying and is more memory dense. Right, one of the uh, well, I wonder by the way who did this, <laughs> and it's going to be even funnier uh, once I reveal that I, uh, you know, had problems by my own patches in Python. Well, I, I did this with Mark Shannon, just just to be clear, it was not just me. Very alone. cool, very cool. Uh, but one of the you know important things that happened here, apart from making Python code much faster because you don't need to like do all this pre-work of uh, you know preparing cval.c to call uh, pyevalival frame default every single time you can basically reuse it now the problem is that um, there are tools that will analyze the C stack and it will try to reconstruct uh, what Python calls were there. And this is very important because like for instance imagine that you're running NumPy or any C extension and it crashes. Um, you normally want a debugger or uh, you know uh, any any tool to uh, tell you where that crash happened. And normally you need to deal with like the C stack there. And when you see the C stack, you're going to see that a bunch of functions uh, that are being called. And from time to time, you're going to see pi eval eval frame default again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And every time before in the old times, as as Gukesh mentioned, every time you see one of these pi eval eval frame default, that was a Python function that was running there. And all of these debuggers, like including the GDB bindings that we have in CPython, in the CPython repo, but also things like PySpy or Membray or PySTEC, uh, those were able to basically grab the C stack with all those PyValleyVal frame default calls and figure out what Python version was running on those calls there. So it will show you what is called a hybrid stack. So, you know, a bunch of C functions and then there is these Python functions and then a bunch of other C functions and so on and so forth. But now after this change, one call to PyEval frame default can like can be assigned to a, a, an infinite number of Python functions. So there is not anymore a one-to-one -one relationship, which means that all these tools were broken yeah. <laughs> in Python 3.11. And even to this day, um, uh, PySpy, for instance, uh, is not working for Python 3.11 plus because they have not still, unfortunately, uh, had time to you know fix this particular problem. So if you run it with Dust as native, it won't be able to merge the stack because it will it will say that um, you know the the stack are not matching because there are more. Uh, function Python function calls that C calls to by valuable frame default, and this is not an easy thing to fix. I, I had to fix this in non membrane as well, which is a profiler I maintain myself, uh, which is you know like uh, poetic justice, right? Like so, you make Python interpreter faster on one side, but then on the other side, you need to just pay the price in blood in your own packages. Right. Yes. So th there is definitely tension between making sure the default case of user executed code is efficient and allowing you to profile and debug what is going on inside a running process. One example of um, functionality that we used to have for this particular case is dtrace. So I added dtrace uh, for Python 3.6, which essentially what that means is um, there is a bunch of probes inside the Python process that usually get compiled into just knobs, operations that don't do anything on the CPU, but they have places that can be patched with 
some other code that, for example, reports that a line was executed or whatnot. And the way you do this is with enough privileges. So, for example, um, on Linux, you need to be root. On macOS, you also had to be root for a while. And these days, you cannot run Dtrace at all unless you reboot your system, disable system integrity protection, and then, only then, you can run Dtrace on another process. And make some blood sacrifices, I suppose. Yeah, so that's, that, that's a blood sacrifice like every time the user wants wants to actually do this. So this essentially broke um, on the operating system layer at some point for macOS. So we weren't really testing this very thoroughly, honestly. And the reason why was that none of our automation for mm, running tests is assuming that it will be running with root privileges. It's kind of scary if you're running a build bot that is going to run random pull requests, um, you know, and it's gonna is going to be executed with uh, administrator privileges. So we don't usually do that. And because of this, when the large changes to frame evaluation came, a bunch of those. Um, probes that were, for example, reporting whether a line was executed got broken. And that was back in 3.11. And for 3.12, the situation got even more complicated. But at that time, Mark Shannon identified that what we really need is some way to instrument the Python process in a way that doesn't hinder performance by default. And the complication with probes um, that Dtrace provides is that they are statically compiled into the binary in a way where the client that tells the process, okay, now we're going to replace your no-op with some operation that is going to actually do something interesting, it doesn't understand what Python is. It doesn't know what variables around that particular probe need to be queried and how to learn, for example, what line is being executed right now. So this uh, form of probe is going to be very hard to implement. So instead, what we gained was PEP669 with a replacement for most of the uses for sys.setTrace and PEP523 and dtrace. So this kind of instrumentation turned out to be pretty successful for some of those uh, use cases, and we already see this. For example, the kind of test coverage gathering that I uh, implemented using this um, functionality is essentially 10 times faster than what we had before. And you know, to some extent, it is even better because it actually finishes reliably and so on and so on. So this is pretty cool. But there are still holdouts of uh, some old APIs, like sysSetTrace is still necessary for all the libraries like coverage.py that need to work with older versions of Python as well. PEP523 is an API that is extensively used, for example, by uh, the Torch inductor that I already talked about. So switching to a different API is not going to be very easy for uh, existing users. So this is going to be still some sort of um, transitional period, especially with the new executor API coming, we'll see how that is going to look like. But there are ma very many ways to instrument a Python process. Some of them require you to build it in a special way. For example, if you 
build Python with PyDebug, um, one functionality that you get specifically for frame evaluation is the so-called low-level trace or LL trace. This is something that allows you to get output of what bytecodes are being executed at a given point in time. And starting with Python 3.11, there's even a better way. Now you can build Python with dash dash enable pystats to gather VM stats on super many things. Like I knew about a bunch of those, but when I actually read the documentation for that option, I was essentially blown away how my, how many details now are available like this this sort of thing in 3.11 was already pretty rich but what we have now is, is somewhat crazy so you have like all stats about how many specializations were attempted how many succeeded failed how many frame objects were created how many python calls were inlined so we were talking right, about this is what the faster python team uses to uh, you know optimize certain cases and the reason is because like even you you know you execute a bunch of python code if the overhead is in the interpreter itself like executing instructions uh, it's very difficult to know exactly what is like what is the cost of, of executing those instructions like you want to know like what instructions are executed more than others, but like as you can imagine, like for instance, the time you spend in load fast is different from the time you spend in like you know setting uh, with statements and whatnot. And uh, also, like you know, if you and in very complicated cases when the optimizer tries to optimize a certain instruction for using floats, but then you pass integers and then you pass floats again, and yeah. you are like in this dance of going back and forward. You know, you want to identify that that is the. The, the actual problem, uh -huh. and uh, the moment all of those things start to work together, you need all this crazy data um, just to understand what's going on. And this is, you know, something that we um, execute um, in benchmarks as well, just to ensure that we understand why a benchmark is becoming faster if we make an, an you know, an optimization in the interpreter, and not because something else changed. Right. So we covered how ceval.c is used to actually interpret user code, but there are a bunch of other things that happen inside that important loop. So can we talk about that for a bit, Pablo? Uh, you know, cval.c, uh, even if it's uh, complicated and you know it's full of all these, these things, there are quite a lot of other cool stuff that happen also on cval.c. Um, so one of the things is that we call the eval breaker, and there is a, a, a lot of fun that happens here. So basically, the eval breaker is this function that well, it's technically not a function; it's just a piece of code that is in, in line in the because you know every time you call a function in eval.c, now it's like three times slower or something like that. So everything is less in line in this enormous file. Uh, but the idea is that for when you are executing bytecodes, so you know you are executing one and then the other and then the other, from time to time there is this code that runs. So evaluation stops, and then there is uh, this special code that starts running, where we call the eval breaker, and it's called the eval breaker because we are breaking evaluation just to do these things. And you know, from time to time, this did like just a bunch of very simple things, things like checking signals, for instance, um, which is quite funny because you know like uh, signals have a very interesting set of behaviors um, that maybe we can talk later, but um, now, as as I think we mentioned in the past podcast, uh, one thing that we changed in uh, Python three twelve is that uh, the garbage collector only runs on the serial breaker. So before the garbage collector, uh, the cycle garbage collector uh, ran like had opportunity to run every time you allocate a Python object. So there is a bunch of like we we can maybe talk about this in some book that episode. But there is a bunch of like heuristics when the garbage collector can run, ba uh, basically based on how many objects are alive and how many objects are in the different generation. 
generations. But the idea is that every time you allocate any Python object, there is a chance for the garbage collector to run. And that's kind of problematic because when the garbage collector runs, it can execute arbitrary Python code. Because when the garbage collector removes some objects or even call finalizers, uh, those those objects can have like underscore underscore del uh, you know functions which we call finalizers. Uh, you know, not destructors, it's finalizers, uh, and that can actually basically do whatever. Right? So so basically, this means that every time you allocate a Python object, the state of the entire world in the next line can change, and this makes like you know writing very specific uh, code in Cval.c very very complicated because when you're dealing with exceptions or frames, the fact that an arbitrary number of Python calls can happen is is really really like difficult to deal with. Like can, you can imagine, for instance, if you are allocating a new frame of execution and then suddenly the GC runs, you are entering Cval.c while you're in the middle of allocating a frame in Cval.c already from a different place, right? So, so you don't want that. Right. And that was uh, the source of super complicated bugs that uh, Bram Booker actually, <laughs> you know, very heroically uh, helped us fix uh, regarding like different frames and the garbage collector running in the middle, which is, you know, very confusing. Uh, so something that I changed in Python 3.12 is that the garbage collector doesn't run anymore on allocation, but it runs on the eval breaker, which means that it can only run from time to time when um, when the interpreter is executing bytecodes, and there is a bunch of exceptions just just to ensure that you know in the in the edge cases when uh, maybe the, you're not executing bytecodes, you can still run the GC. So we we hook this in on signal checking and whatnot. Yes. Uh, but but the eval breaker is basically absorbing all these cases. Uh, that we need to handle basically the state. And uh, as you will see, maybe when we talk about uh, more in depth about the Nogil work, uh, the Nogil work also relies on the evil breaker just to you know do some bookkeeping from time to time and, and checks you know that GC is, is compact and, and all these optimizations that we discussed last time are still you know working and, and you can compatify the memory. Right. And you also mentioned that this is in ceval.c where Python handles signals. Yep. So, so the the signals uh, that that run on the Cval loop. It, this is a very interesting uh, behavior because um, I don't know if it ha- ha- happened to you as uh, any time. But if you are, uh, you know, for instance, um, executing some C extension in Python, let's imagine that you have like a. Uh, this is not the use case of uh, any like big corporation that I work or or anything. But imagine that you have a super you know high efficient uh, you know C plus uh, plus framework to do like uh, you know um, calls over the network and whatnot. And then you have this uh, wonderful function called run that blocks the thread and it spans a bunch of other threads. Um, so if you execute this thing on the main uh, in the main thread of CPython, and then you suddenly broke Control C, so you cannot stop the process anymore because uh, the signals are only checked on cval.c on the eval breaker, and these uh, signals not only happen on the eval breaker but also only are checked on the main thread. Which means, uh, and there is historical reasons for this because, like some some diff- old OSs and before, like threads were actually P threads and whatnot. There was some weird semantics, so we force that the signal handlers are checking on the eval breaker, but only if the main thread is the one breaking the eval breaker. Uh, which means that if you are blocking the main thread with some, you know, C code or whatever, you, signals are never processed anymore. Yeah. Uh, which you know, may, users may not like, and it may need some hacky solutions. Yeah, it uh, might be a problem. Those are for the hypothetical poor people that work on on financial companies. We need to invite one <laughs> to our show. But yes, like this is an interesting case, and it's very annoying uh, to deal with because this is not only something that happens in this in this uh, example that I'm mentioning. This is quite common. If you block for whatever reason the main thread. 
not really with mutexes, for instance, imagine that you're doing some NumPy calculation, right? So you're or like, you know, tensor, tensor m- huh? multiplication or whatnot. Uh, if, if if you know you're running a lot of C code, uh, C code is not executing bytecode instructions, which means that the eval breaker will never run, which means that signals will never get checked. And this is very annoying because like if you want to interrupt your long running calculation with Control C, it will not work, <laughs> and that's a very bad experience. And that is why there is like a bunch of um, extra uh, functions that sadly people don't use when they use the C extensions, only the pros, um, which are called PyR check signals, with that you can you know stick in your C code. Uh, you have a very long loop, for instance, in NumPy or TensorFlow, they do this. Uh, so from time to time, you can manually check for signals, uh, even if you're not in the main thread yeah. or even if you're not executing bytecode. So Control C still works if you are multiplying NumPy arrays or you're doing some weird tensor machine learning thing. Um, but this happens on the CVL.C and this happens on the eval breaker and that's why sometimes you you know you press control C and it doesn't work. Right. So signal handling is only one of the examples where Python needs to interact with the operating systems APIs and tries to provide an easier model for the user to understand. And one thing that we already mentioned for this is that whenever we had function calls in Python that caused C calls to happen at the same time, even though we theoretically could have an infinite number of Python calls, we couldn't have an infinite number of C calls in the stack. The stack overflow is a real danger, which for a Python program would finish in a very unsatisfactory way because the entire process would just crash with a very minimal error message, meaning all the users of the Python programming language would have a very hard time understanding what just happened. There would not be a nice traceback, they would not have a way to recover from this error. So for this particular use case, the recursion error, also known as recursion depth exceeded, exception was created and we were tracking how many times we are recursing so that if some threshold is um, exceeded, we would rather stop executing inside the Python interpreter on our own rules and explain what happened to the user with a nice traceback instead of relying on the operating system to just say, okay, there's no more stack, Um, there's going to be a stack overflow. Interestingly, this implementation detail that started uh, for this particular purpose started being relied upon by Python users for their own algorithmic usage. So if they had some business logic that relied on user input or user data, it wasn't always easy to determine how long this particular piece of code is going to run. So the recursion limit ended up being handy for cases like this. You could even configure how big this limit was. And now that, as I said, we no longer couple a Python function call with a C function call, we could remove this limit. This limit wouldn't be necessary anymore. 
but it is an API that is relied upon. So now there had to be essentially a re-implementation of this in light of uh, our new advances. Well, not only that, like you could have, like if you call Python functions for Python functions, you can do this technically arbitrarily, but if you just happen to have any C function in the middle, you will still call new py eval eval frame default. So you could imagine in this case when uh, and you know they, like all the buildings are implemented in C, so calling C methods that end calling more Python methods will create this. Uh, so you cannot reuse the same call to Py by frame default. So you can still stack overflow right. uh, with the optimization. If you just call Python to Python all the time, that's fine. But if you have these C calls in the middle, you will still need to call more Py by frame default uh, because you know you cannot reuse the previous one for a C call. Uh, which means that you know it's still this weird world when you can say, well, I will implement increase the you know the recursion limit to one million billion, uh, you know, to prevent uh, my super JSON to uh, not crash. But still, like you know, if you just happen to run any C function in the middle for whatever reason, you can still check fault. So, so it's not totally safe. So that's why we still have it. Right. But talking about things that are maybe not totally well, this is totally safe, but it's quite cool as well. Um, in cval.c, you can have some of the super obscure reasons some very bad code doesn't run slowly. And one of them uh, is this cool optimization that we have. And I don't know, obviously, you know, Gukes, you know it because uh, core developers, we know everything. You're <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously joking. But um, turns out that, uh, you know, Technically, if you add two strings together, uh, or imagine that you have the following case: you have a bunch of words, right, separated, um, you know, a, a list of words, and then you want to join them all together. This happens all the time, yes. right? Like you have, uh, you chunk the text in spaces, and then you do some selection of the words, and then you want to join all the words together again into a single string, which is the final text, right? Yes. And many people do this thing when they do four word in words resolve plus equal word, right? So they, they keep adding to the same string. Yes, they just use plus equal, right? Right. And this is, as we know, a bad idea because technically this is quadratic. And this is because strings are immutable, which means that every time you add two strings together, you need to allocate a new string, copy the old string into the new one, and add the new one on top of it. Which means that if you add this thing and again and again and again, this is going to take on square. Uh, complexity. But if you run it inside CPython, even if all of what I say is true, you will see that it's not quadratic actually. It's, it's more expensive obviously than having a list and called join, uh, but this is not quadratic. And the reason is because we have this cool, crazy optimization inside cval.c uh, uh, because mo a lot of people you know that are not professional programmers still will write this code and we can kind of like help them in this case and uh, we have this optimization that basically checks if the temporary that is created by adding the two strings is only like owned by the cval loop mm -hmm. and so basically we check the number of references that we have and if it's two at the time we um, we are receiving it which is one on the variable and one in the stack then we basically reuse the same string like uh, because nobody can really see that we are going to secretly mutate the string you know strings are immutable unless you are a c python core developer and uh, so we do this this uh, secret mutation and that's the way we avoid a quadratic algorithm uh, and this secret lives here and some people actually, NumPy developers, I thought, well, this is super cool. Let's do it as well. So if, I don't know if you know it, but NumPy has this super secret file called 
temp full of monsters. <laughs> and basically they, they said, oh, this optimization is super cool because this happens in NumPy quite a lot. Like people are adding NumPy arrays all the time and they are doing all these crazy like you know binary operations with a bunch of them, so A plus B plus B or something like that. And we want to reuse arrays as well. We like this trick, this will make NumPy much faster. But they have a problem because all this secret thing about like checking references in cval.c is very easy to do if you are writing cval.c, but it's very hard to do if you are in NumPy. Right. Because they are not inside cval.c, so this file has these crazy like operations when they like get they call backtrace in C and receive a bunch of frame pointers and they check if this frame pointer belongs to the range that is owned by cval.c, so they know that whatever is happening is happening on cval.c, and and they do this thing only if the array is very big because obviously checking the the C stack wow. by hand is expensive, so they need to say well is this going to be like worth enough? Like maybe not, so maybe let's not do this thing for the smaller arrays, but if the array is very big, you know, that copy is big, big, going to be very costly. So there is this like, I don't know, 16 lines if condition, like if a statement just checking all these conditions, which by itself checking is also expensive. So they have factored that thing out as well. It's just it's crazy. This file is, is ridiculous. And this is just because they want to do the same optimizations, but they don't own C about C. So something that is very easy for us is very hard for them. Yeah, very interesting. So I hope you enjoyed this hour with ceval.c. And if you're scared of the current world we're living in and the world that we are marching towards, like know that you can always go and hug Python 2.6 and the simplicity that we had at the time. But now let's talk about something completely different. What's going on in CPython? So over the past two weeks, since the last episode, we released Python 3.12.0 Alpha 2. Yay. Yeah, with a bunch of new additions to it. So let's start with the obvious question, is the gill removed yet? Well, uh, no, not quite, but the process is going very well. Half uh, of the gill is gone. <laughs> it's half. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's half of it is gone. Like it's, uh, we're going faster than I expected. It's uh, um, pretty cool to actually see the progress as it goes. So before I uh, mentioned that we are now like, having instructions for um, beginning and ending critical sections. So those find already usage inside Python. So functools LRU cache is now protected with the new critical section APIs and weak refs are as well. So things are moving along. And um, Sam Gross is uh, now adding new APIs that are necessary for um, removing the gel. And one of those is the PyOnce flag. So something that allows us to ensure that some internals are called exactly once. This is needed for one-time initializations, for example, in the Python AST and get args. So APIs for deconstructing argument lists. Uh, on top of this, speaking of critical sections, it is now possible to use an at critical section directive in argument clinic. So the automation that we have inside Python to construct valid parsing of arguments and functions that are implemented in C. So you can use this at critical section to automate use of uh, this important API for locking self-objects on methods. Right. Uh, I don't know if it happens to you ever. Uh, there certainly happened to me, and I think this is one of those things that every core developer at some point finds, that is, uh, there is some sneaky secret APIs that when you call them, they don't give you new references. And this is like quite important because, you know, like when you're calling 
as an API, it's not, in C Python, like by list new, you get a new list and then you are in charge of it, you are the owner, you need to dereference the list when you finish. But there is some APIs that sneakily return you a reference that you don't really own. One of them, I think the, the, the most common one, is by the get item. So I think this is the API to get an item from a dictionary, uh, given the key, uh, but that you don't own the reference that it returns, it's borrow, uh, which is like, you know, you could argue that it's an optimization because you don't need to the, the, record, uh, the reference the, um, the object that you get, uh, only if you want it, you encrypt the, the thing. But this is a problem with the new world we live in, because in Nogil, uh, you know, weak references, which is, uh, which is what these kind of references are, um, sorry, borrow reference, not weak reference. Borrow reference, which are, are these references, are quite dangerous because you know it's very difficult to reason about them with threads, and it's very easy to um, get one of these and then another thread just the, the, like removes the reference, and then you you have like garbage. So uh, Victor Stinner, which is doing a lot of like work around this uh, the C API, uh, added a new function called PyDick get item ref. Which is doing the same thing as by the get item, but it will return you a strong references. And this is quite important because, like, without these APIs, new C extensions that need to deal with, uh, you know, the guild, and internally, it, you know, it's very difficult to distinguish in which case you are supposed to like take it because it's risky, and in which case you are not. And in general, in the presence of free threading, um, you will always want APIs that return strong references just to avoid this this uh, case when you need to do special things just because the API. Return right, and this is a very cool API because it um, not only uh, handles the strong reference use case correctly, but to do this, it handles also the case when a key wasn't found in the dictionary or some other error happened. And it turns out that almost every time that we were accessing a dictionary and looking for some key in the C API and the internals of Python, we had to by hand handle those three cases. So the code for this was just every time a little different, but trying to do the same thing. So Sergi Storchaka went on a spree to replace all those old APIs with the new variant. And you can like actually follow this issue, find it on our issue tracker, where it's mostly just red PRs. Like uh, The changes end up being much shorter with this new elegant function, PyDict get item ref. Very cool. Very cool. Red PRs as PRs that implement like remove lines, more lines than they are, right? Yes, exactly. It's not like dangerous PRs or anything, right? Red PRs. <laughs> so so Victor in fact started 313 with just removing a bunch of private things from the C API that were never intended to be used by external users of Python. But you know Every time there is some uh, function that is convenient and already there, people will use it. So a bunch of users of those removed functions complained that there were no valid equivalents available in the existing API. So Victor added, for example, pylist extend, pylist clear, and pydict pop. So APIs that are equivalents of private APIs that were removed in the meantime. Well, um, one thing that I'm quite happy to also report is that uh, I merged a PR that had two years already sitting there, like you know, getting getting uh, marinated or something. And this PR was basically uh, implementing better error messages for uh, not matching ELFs and, uh, and else statements. So you have like you're writing a complicated. Uh, you know, if, if, else statement, and then you have one of them, the two of these that are not matching. 
And the reason this PR was sitting there is that unfortunately we do want our contributors to actually do the work. So even if it's very easy for us to just jump there and say like, I'm going to just fix all these problems. The idea of contributing is that you have a great experience because you make your change, but also you learn how to do these things. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, you know, the, this iteration of like us telling the contributor, oh, you forgot to run this command that maybe you didn't knew that you needed to run, or the reason you're seeing this error is because of this. Uh, this quite take a long time because you know we take a long time to answer and they take a long time to answer because everybody has life outside C Python. Sure. And unfortunately, this is one of these cases that I'm a bit embarrassed that took two years. But in Python 3.13, we will have better error messages for this case. No, no, very cool. Like some of those things need time to bake. Like very often there are open issues about things being suboptimal, but it's not very clear what you should be doing in the first place. One that case was fnmatch.translate. So this functionality that we had that allowed you to translate shell wildcards into regular expressions. And it was already there, but it had this very weird behavior when the asterisk would actually go through uh, path separators. So it would cut the entire path you know, ac across the path separators. So that was useless for what most people wanted to translate to be. But it wasn't clear how to solve this. Right. So now, finally, Barney Gale added a function to the glob module that does this translation in a more predictable way. So now it's... Uh, easier to use correctly without this big gotcha. And in fact, the reason he did this in the first place is he and Alex Wayguide way into um, Pathlib and started optimizing things that Pathlib was doing in inefficient ways or non-efficient ways. So now there are plenty of smaller um, optimizations in Pathlib that ultimately make it way snappier in Python 3.13. So for example, just this glob.translate is speeding up directory walking by 20%. So it should be a big difference for any sort of uh, scripts that hit the file system written in Python, running on Python 3.13. That's super cool actually, and those users will certainly notice 20% on those functions. Uh, by the way, speaking of all bugs that go fix. Uh, one of the cool things that we have now is that TLSPSK, which uh, you know it could be anything unless you are into security and uh, web protocols and whatnot. This stands for pre-share key because you know security people like to put acronym without vowels. Uh, so this is now supported in the SSL module. Just to be clear, uh, normally certificate-based authentication should be preferred. Obviously, always this, but uh, this is quite an interesting protocol because uh, normally it's very common on web stuff. Uh, but that turns out that it's quite common on embedded environments that want their communication not to be clear text. So you know now this is supported on the SSL module, so they can they can use it. Which is you know maybe it's not going to bad everyone, but it's quite cool. right. Obviously, pre-sharing the key is the tricky bit. But um, what you get of for this is we cheaper communication, right? Like with not having certificates and this entire handshake at the start of the, your communication, for example, is important when you're running on battery and you have environments where you cannot charge your battery very often. So for this particular use case, we were always relying on third-party libraries. Now the built-in SSL module finally supports this. So that's great to see. And the idle debugger also got some love um, recently. Anthony Shaw 
increased the test coverage of that debugger in idle from 19% to 66%. And while doing this, he squashed quite a few bugs. So that was awesome to see. And similarly, PSTATS, PY, so the module that can actually display what you gathered using C-Profile, that coverage uh, was bumped by 1%. So it doesn't sound like much. But sometimes those small wins are quite non-trivial because they touch on exceptions being raised or other edge cases that aren't very easy to model in a test case. So all of those uh, improvements in test coverage like, are very good to see. Like Every time we're going to have those um, small improvements, it's going to find some issue or prevent an issue in the future. I remember when I first started fighting for 100% line coverage for config parser, uh, some of the other core developers were kind of skeptical of whether it's worthwhile spending this time on, uh, you know, what is essentially a bunch of uncovered uh, except statements. And what turned out was hiding there were three or four, I don't remember anymore, but it was either three or four bugs just on this one last percent of coverage not covered because those were the tricky bits. Exactly. And it turned out that they were raising the wrong exception or they were returning something entirely incorrect on just some particular error case and so on and so on. So all of those are still in the test case. You can look for them. And the test case for this is literally called just, I think, coverage 100 or something <laughs> because it, it, those were just like random variety tests that were just there to make sure that we hit all of those uh, metrics, but it was worth it. So that was that was very interesting. Well, there. those are all the cases where people are like pragma no cover because like oh this is super <laughs> difficult to test and like you know it's, it, every time something weird happens is that thing. So you know everyone that removes one yeah. of those weird pragma no covers and has trash crazy shit happen. You know you are in my heart exactly. And I think the other exciting thing that we already mentioned is that uh, we have our first micro op in the tier two interpreter, which is uh, for Ether. So in the future, you know, if you are in some Python, uh, and then there is this trivia section when you can gain awesome prizes, and someone asks you, "What was the first micro op that appeared in C Python?" Now you know it was for Ether. Well, maybe we removed it for three thirteen, so all of this is wrong, so, and then you lose. But we'll see. <laughs> yes, everything is still in the air. I do hope that this wasn't too scary for an episode. Uh, my hope here was to demystify the core of the interpreter just a bit and show you what it means to interpret code. This is an area of active development, which is why we are talking about it constantly. And this is some of the most fragile pieces of Python. Even a small bug in the central place makes the entire interpreter explode, essentially. So we need to be very careful to make changes there. But inside that complexity of today's ceval.c still lies this very elegant architecture that I found when I first looked at this file back in Python two days. And since this still lives in the repository on GitHub, you can do this as well. You can look at it and understand what drives the programming language that we are using. And maybe now after listening to this episode, you can finally, finally know why all these cool people keep saying the CPython VM. And you say, but what is this? Is this not a VM? Now you know. <laughs> Wait until you find the abstract base class called container. <laughs> no way. See you next time. See you next time. Mm-hmm.